Chapter Eleven of Eight Cousins by Louisa May Alcott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Eleven. Poor Mac. Rosa's sacrifice was a failure in one respect, for though the elders loved her the better for it and showed that they did, the boys were not inspired with the sudden respect which she had hoped for. In fact. Her feelings were much hurt by overhearing Archie say that he couldn't see any sense in it, and the prince added another blow by pronouncing her the queerest chicken ever seen. It is apt to be so, and it is hard to bear, for though we do not want trumpets blown, we do like to have our little virtues appreciated, and cannot help feeling disappointed if they are not. A time soon came, however, when Rose quite unconsciously won not only the respect of her cousins, but their gratitude and affection likewise. Soon after the island episode, Mac had a sunstroke and was very ill for some time. It was so sudden that everyone was startled, and for some days the boy's life was in danger. He pulled through, however, and then, just as the family were rejoicing, a new trouble appeared. Poor Mac's eyes gave out, and well they might, for he had abused them, and never being very strong, they suffered doubly now. No one dared to tell him the dark predictions of the great oculist who came to look at them, and the boy tried to be patient, thinking that a few weeks of rest would repair the overwork of several years. He was forbidden to look at a book, and as that was the one thing he most delighted in, it was a terrible affliction to the worm. Everyone was very ready to read to him, and at first the lads contended for this honor. But as week after week went by, and Mac was still condemned to idleness in a darkened room, their zeal abated, and one after the other fell off. It was hard for the active fellows right in the midst of their vacation, and nobody blamed them when they contented themselves with brief calls, running of errands, and warm expressions of sympathy. The elders did their best. But Uncle Mac was a busy man. Aunt Jane's reading was of a funereal sort, impossible to listen to long. And the other aunties were all absorbed in their own cares, though they supplied the boy with every delicacy they could invent. Uncle Alec was host in himself, but he could not give all his time to the invalid. And if it had not been for Rose, the afflicted worm would have fared ill. Her pleasant voice suited him. Her patience was unfailing. Her time of no apparent value. And her eager goodwill was very comforting. The womanly power of self-devotion was strong in the child, and she remained faithfully at her post when all the rest dropped away. Hour after hour, she sat in the dusky room with one ray of light on her book, reading to the boy, who lay with shaded eyes, silently enjoying the only pleasure that lightened the weary days. Sometimes he was peevish and hard to please. Sometimes he growled because his reader could not manage the dry books he wished to hear, and sometimes he was so despondent that her heart ached to see him. Through all these trials, Rose persevered, using all her little arts to please him. When he fretted, she was patient. When he growled, she prowled bravely through the hard pages, not dry to her in one sense, for quiet tears dropped on them now and then. And when Mac fell into a despairing mood. She comforted him with every hopeful word she dared to offer. He said little, but she knew he was grateful, for she suited him better than any one else. If she was late, he was impatient. When she had to go, he seemed forlorn, 
and when the tired head ached worst, she could always soothe him to sleep, crooning the old songs her father used to love. I don't know what I should do without that child, Aunt Jane often said. She's worth all those racketing fellows put together, Mac would add, fumbling about to discover if the little chair was ready for her coming. That was the sort of reward Rose liked, the thanks that cheered her, and whenever she grew very tired, one look at the green shade, the curly head so restless on the pillow, and the poor, groping hands, touched her tender heart and put new spirit into the weary voice. She did not know how much she was learning, both from the books she read and the daily sacrifices she made. Stories and poetry were her delight, but Mac did not care for them. And since his favorite Greeks and Romans were forbidden, he satisfied himself with travels, biographies, and the history of great inventions or discoveries. Rose despised this taste at first, but soon got interested in Livingston's adventures, Hobson's stirring life in India, and the brave trials and triumphs of Watt and Arkwright, Fulton and Palissy the Potter. The true, strong books helped the dreamy girl. Her faithful service and sweet patience touched and won the boy and long afterward both learned to see how useful those seemingly hard and weary hours had been to them. One bright morning, as Rose sat down to begin a fat volume entitled History of the French Revolution, expecting to come to great grief over the long names, Mac, who was lumbering about the room like a blind bear, stopped her by asking abruptly, "'What day of the month is it?' "'The 7th of August, I believe.' More than half my vacation done, and I've only had a week of it. I call that hard, and he groaned dismally. So it is, but there is more to come, and you may be able to enjoy that. May be able. I will be able. Does that old noodle think I'm going to stay stived up here much longer? I guess he does, unless your eyes get on faster than they have yet. Has he said anything more lately? I haven't seen him, you know. Shall I begin? This looks rather nice. Read away. It's all one to me. And Matt cast himself down upon the old lounge, where his heavy head fell easiest. Rose began with great spirit and kept on gallantly for a couple of chapters. Getting over the unpronounceable names with unexpected success, she thought, for her listener did not correct her once, and lay so still she fancied he was deeply interested. All of a sudden she was arrested in the middle of a fine paragraph by Mac, who sat bolt upright, brought both feet down with a thump, and said in a rough, excited voice, Stop! I don't hear a word, and you may as well save your breath to answer my question. What is it? asked Rose, looking uneasy, for she had something on her mind, and feared that he suspected what it was. His next words proved that she was right. Now look here, I want to know something. And you've got to tell me. Please don't, began Rose beseechingly. You must, or I'll pull off this shade and stare at the sun as hard as ever I can stare. Come now. And he half rose as if ready to execute the threat. I will. Oh, I will tell if I know. But don't be reckless and do anything so crazy as that, cried Rose in great distress. Very well, then listen, and don't dodge as everyone else does. Didn't the doctor think my eyes worse the last time he came? Mother won't say, but you shall. I believe he did, faltered Rose. I thought so. Did he say I should be able to go to school when it begins? No, Mac. Very low. 
Ah. That was all, but Rose saw her cousin set her lips together and take a long breath, as if she had hit him hard. He bore the disappointment bravely, however, and asked quite steadily in a minute, How soon does he think I can study again? It was so hard to answer that, yet Rose knew she must. For Aunt Jane had declared she could not do it, and Uncle Mac had begged her to break the truth to the poor lad. Not for a good many months. How many? he asked, with a pathetic sort of gruffness. A year, perhaps. A whole year? Why, I expected to be ready for college by that time. And pushing up the shade, Mac stared at her with startled eyes that soon blinked and fell before the one ray of light. Plenty of time for that. You must be patient now and get them thoroughly well, or they will trouble you again when it will be harder to spare them, she said with tears in her own eyes. I won't do it. I will study and get through somehow. It's all humbug about taking care so long. These doctors like to keep hold of a fellow if they can. But I won't stand it. I vow I won't. And he banged his fist down on the unoffending pillow as if he were pummeling the hard-hearted doctor. Now, Mac, listen to me, Rose said very earnestly, though her voice shook a little and her heart ached. You know you have hurt your eyes reading by firelight and in the dusk, and sitting up late, and now you'll have to pay for it. The doctor said so. You must be careful and do as he tells you, or you will be blind. No. Yes, it is true, and he wanted us to tell you that nothing but entire rest would cure you. I know it's dreadfully hard, but we'll all help you. I'll read all day long, and lead you, and wait upon you, and try to make it easier. She stopped there, for it was evident that he did not hear sound. The word blind seemed to have knocked him down, for he had buried his face in the pillow and lay so still that Rose was frightened. She sat motionless for many minutes, longing to comfort him, but not knowing how, and wishing Uncle Alec would come for he had promised to tell Mac. Presently a sort of choking sound came out of the pillow and went straight to her heart, the most pathetic sob she had ever heard. For, though it was the most natural means of relief, the poor fellow must not indulge in it because of the afflicted eyes. The French Revolution tumbled out of her lap, and running to the sofa, she knelt down by it, saying with a motherly sort of tenderness girls feel for any sorry creature, "'Oh, my dear, you mustn't cry!' It is so bad for your poor eyes. Take your head out of that hot pillow, and let me cold it. I don't wonder you feel so. But please don't cry. I'll cry for you. It won't hurt me. As she spoke, she pulled away the cushion with gentle force, and saw the green shade all crushed and stained, with a few hot tears that told how bitter the disappointment had been. Mac felt her sympathy, but, being a boy, did not thank her for it only sat up with a jerk, saying, as he tried to rub away the tell-tale drops from his jacket sleeve, Don't bother. Weak eyes always water. I'm all right. But Rose cried out and caught his arm. Don't touch them with that rough woolen stuff. Lie down and let me bathe them. Then there will be no harm done. They do smart confoundedly. I say, don't you tell the other fellows that I made a baby of myself, will you? He added, yielding with a sigh to the orders of his nurse who had flown for the eyewash and the linen cambric handkerchief. Of course I won't, but anyone would be upset at the idea of being, well, troubled in this way. 
I'm sure you bear it splendidly, and you know it isn't half so bad when you get used to it. Besides, it is only for a time, and you can do lots of pleasant things if you can't study. You'll have to wear blue goggles, perhaps. Won't that be funny? And while she was pouring out all the comfortable words she could think of, Rose was softly bathing the eyes and dabbing the hot forehead with lavender water as her patient lay quiet with a look on his face that grieved her sadly. Homer was blind, and so was Milton, and they did something to be remembered by, in spite of it, he said as if to himself in a solemn tone, for even the blue goggles did not bring a smile. Papa had a picture of Milton and his daughters writing for him. It was a very sweet picture, I thought observed Rose in a serious voice, trying to meet the sufferer on his own grounds. Perhaps I could study if someone read and did the eye part. Do you suppose I could, by and by? he asked with a sudden ray of hope. I dare say, if your head is strong enough. The sunstroke, you know, is what upsets you, and your brains need rest, the doctor says. I'll have a talk with the old fellow next time he comes and find out just what I may do. What a fool I was that day to be stewing my brains and letting the sun glare on my book till the letters danced before me. I see him now when I shut my eyes, black balls bobbing round, and stars and all sorts of queer things. Wonder if all blind people do. Don't think about them. I'll go on reading, shall I? We shall come to the exciting part soon, and then you'll forget all this, suggested Rose. No, I never shall forget. Hang the old revolution. I don't want to hear another word of it. My head aches, and I'm hot. Oh, wouldn't I like to go for a pull in the stormy petrol? And poor Mac tossed about as if he did not know what to do with himself. Let me sing, and perhaps you'll drop off. Then the day will seem shorter, said Rose, sitting down beside him. Perhaps I shall. I didn't sleep much last night, and when I did, I dreamed like fun. See here. You tell the people that I know, and it's all right, and I don't want them to talk about it or howl over me. That's all. Now drone away, and I'll try to sleep. Wish I could for a year, and wake up cured. Oh, I wish, I wish you could. Rose said it so fervently that Mac was moved to grip for her apron and hold on to a corner of it, as if it was comfortable to feel her near him. But all he said was, You are a good little soul, Rosie. Give us the Burks. That is a drowsy one that always sends me off. Quite contented with the small return for all her sympathy, Rose waved her fan and sang, in a dreamy tone, the pretty Scotch air, the burden of which is Bonnie the sea, will ye gang, will ye gang to the Burks of Aberfeldie? Whether the lassie went or not, I cannot say, but the laddie was off to the land of Nott in about ten minutes, quite worn out with hearing the bad tidings and the effort to hear them manfully. End of chapter 11 Recording by Maria Therese